Welcome to China Insider, a podcast from Hudson Institute's China Center. It's Tuesday, July 11th, and we have three topics for today. The first is Secretary Janet Yellen's recent visit to Beijing and its implications for economic relations between the U.S. and China. The second is the CCP's new Department of Social Work, formed this past March, and how it furthers the centralization of the party's domestic control. And lastly, we discuss the 2023 NATO summit and how Indo-Pacific security fits into NATO's focus today. Miles, how are you? Very good. Thank you, Shane. Good to see you again. Well, so over the weekend, for our first topic, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen wrapped up her visit to Beijing. The trip was part of an attempt to stabilize and improve economic relationship uh, relations between the U.S. and China. Like Secretary of State Blinken's recent visit, a major focus was developing clear lines of communication between Beijing and Washington. She met with China's new economic team headed by Chinese Premier Li Cheng, who was appointed to the position this past March. She reports that she pressed PRC officials on China's unfair economic practices, urged them towards a more market-oriented economic system, sought to find areas of common interest in which we could work together with the the PRC, such as climate change, and uh, criticized China for their unfair treatment of U.S. companies, especially in the wake of the recent espionage law. What do you make of this trip? What were the main issues on the table? And in your estimation, has it been a success? Well, you know, define what success uh, actually means. uh, You can spin it. Either way, you, you, you mentioned uh, Secretary Blinken's visit uh, uh, is in sharp contrast to this visit. Basically, they're dealing with two major uh, different interlocutors. Blinken's visit to China was uh, meeting with the uh, political team headed by Xi Jinping himself. So the atmosphere was uh, pretty ferocious. I mean, uh, he was treated pretty badly and, uh, you know, China launches all kinds of complaints and, and unleashes the anger to the United States. So that one was not uh, nearly as smooth as uh, Secretary Yellen's visit to China. That's because Yellen uh, deals with a totally different team. That's the economic team. And uh, China's economy is in serious trouble. And China needs the United States much more than uh, U.S. needs China at this moment. So that's why they rolled the red carpet for Secretary Yellen. Yellen bowed um, rather infamously uh, three times. But then uh, the talk did take place, and uh, there were some very serious uh, conversations um, uh, during this trip. I don't think is the is the success in terms of any substantial issues have been resolved, but the fact that they sit down rather you know cordially to explain each other's position in that way it sounds like you know there's no major confrontation. As a follow up, among the issues raised and in, in the statements made, uh, Yellen took a hard stance against the idea of decoupling, something we've spoken about on this show before. She stated, quote, we know that a decoupling of the world's two largest economies would be disastrous for both countries and destabilizing for the world. She was quick to clarify that diversifying supply chains when it matters to key industries such as national defense is still very much our aim, uh, but emphasized that these efforts should be narrow. On this show, we've talked before about how decoupling is not really a matter of policy, but rather, uh, as you've stated, a natural consequence of an untrustworthy and unpredictable business environment in China. With that in mind, do you think any of Yellen's statements to the Chinese regarding their unfair practices went far enough? Do you think this trip you know, made significant steps towards any meaningful guarantees that actually could curb the trend of decoupling? 
Well, decoupling is a Chinese Communist Party uh, jargon. I mean, uh, nobody in the West is talking about decoupling as, a, as you say, state policy. Decoupling is taking place uh, uh, in China. That's because of entirely China's own doing. It's created the hostile investment environment for foreign um, uh, companies. Uh, it's almost impossible right now to, uh, to contemplate any major infuse of foreign capital in China without being subjected to draconian national security laws and anti-espionage laws. So you cannot really find out uh, uh, the basic economic data on China upon which to make an investment advice. So that's why China tried to shift the blame as if you know, decoupling is a global uh, restriction on China. No, it's not. It's not. So uh, I think one of the uh, major issues, you talk about substance, um, major issues is uh, China uh, wants the United States to lift uh, uh, technology export control. On that ground, Secretary Yellen did not yield. And he she tried to explain to the CCP leaders uh, why national security should not be compromised in favor of economic interaction with China. Uh, I think the Chinese were particularly concerned and worried about the upcoming uh, presidential executive order that may or may not come forth at this moment uh, on targeting China's uh, uh, technological uh, import from the United States. So uh, all uh, Secretary Yellen had to say was, uh, she said, well, it's coming, but we're going to narrowly target it, uh, ban uh, on tech export to China. So she said, it's coming, but they're going to be more selective. That basically soothes China's soul a little bit. Uh, but also, I think the the, uh, uh, the overall purpose of this visit is to figure out a new economic team with the CCP so that the both sides would have some kind of workable relationship. Uh, I don't think anything fundamental uh, has changed uh, because uh, the reality is China is a non-market economy. And so uh, that's why to focus on the counter non-market economy measurements uh, were absolutely necessary. And also we have to understand the fundamental economy, uh, reality of China is China is still a 100% communist country. The party itself exerts enormous intervention on all aspects of Chinese economic operation. So those two realities have to be dealt with uh, with a clear sense of, uh, of uh, sanity. So um, any way to compromise that is going to be very, very difficult. And also, Yellen um, being a very uh, senior female uh, official at the uh, of the uh, U.S. government, and she did have this kind of, you know, uh, solidarity touch. Um, she met with uh, several female economists in China. I mean, it, it, it's, 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 it looks good optically, but, you know, uh, listen, you know, uh, we have this kind of a political show in the past. Uh, it, it normally didn't work. It reflects uh, of a lack of understanding of Chinese uh, reality. Chinese intelli intelligentsia is under control of the Chinese Communist Party. When Biden was vice president, he interacted with Xi Jinping quite a bit, who was really the supreme leader in waiting. And during one of his last visits, uh, Vice President Biden met with four Chinese scholars. He thought this kind of a people-to-people -people, uh, touch. It turned out all the four scholars were staunch anti-U.S. Anti fanatics. One of them is the leading um, uh, anti-U.S. voice uh, today um, from the uh, the People's University or the Min Dashui. 
it 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 is quite you know um yeah, uh, unhelpful in that regard. But overall, I think uh, Secretary Yellen get a better treatment uh, than um, uh, the one that uh, Secretary Blinken received. That certainly seems to be the case. Uh, just as one last follow-up, um, as you've stated, nothing fundamental has changed. And it seems that, you know, going forward, there do need to be fundamental changes in our economic relationship with China. In your estimation, what would go far enough? Is a visit, is that in any way sufficient? Uh, are there specific policies you would recommend? How would you have advised Yellen to approach this situation? Uh, as again, you know, uh, we have to treat China uh, as a non-market economy, that's number one. We also have to treat China, uh, be totally aware of the fact that China is controlled by an anti-capitalism communist party. And uh, there is no such thing called uh, uh, constitutionally, constitutionally protected property rights, for example, in China. If you don't have a private ownership, you don't have like a, uh, uh, property rights, uh, what kind of a trade um, partnership would you, would, you, would you expect from that? And the Chinese state plays a predominant role in China's um, um, major trade economic policies. The state-driven you know, um, uh, capitalism but it's not really a capitalism in a way. Turning to China's domestic politics, uh, this past March, the party unveiled a restructuring of the way in which it will manage key areas such as finance, social affairs, and technological development. This brought with it the formation of a new of new agencies uh, which centralize uh, the party's control and, and thus Xi Jinping's rule. Among these was the formation of the new Department of Social Work, which will oversee party interactions with civic groups, chambers of commerce and industry groups, and handle public petitions and grievances. Miles, could you talk a little bit about this new department? What is it really? What is it doing? Um, you know, why was it formed and how significant is it? Uh, this is actually very uh, significant because, uh, as you mentioned, this, this is a, a new organization called the Department of Social Work, Sohui Gongzuo Bu is normally should be under the state council, uh, uh, which is basically uh, headed by the Chinese premier. No, this one is directly under the Central Committee of the Chinese Communist Party. So it's a, it's a party organization under the General Secretary of the Chinese Communist Party, that's Xi Jinping himself, not under Premier Li Qiang, which means the party is now going to take, take control of the, uh, the, the massive and mounting uh, social discontent. Because of the nature of this Chinese communist system, there is a, a absolutely um, ineptitude and inability to uphold social justice and bureaucratic cruelty at the social level, at the local and, uh, and provincial level. So the result is that each year, you have tens of millions of what we call the petitioners, people who could not, who were treated really unfairly at the local level, and they all go to Beijing, you know, go to the, uh, the central authorities to seek justice and, uh, and fairness. Uh, so that's why you have this major problem of, the, of, of one of the major uh, human migrations each year, that is the, the uh, mistreated the petitioners in China. So this is out of control uh, as Chinese economy worsens. So that's why the party uh, now say, no, we're going to take direct control. Uh, on top of that, you also have this massive unemployed people in China. They become increasingly uh, restless. So the new department is to uh, is established to exert CCP party control, set up party cells at all levels of the downtrodden population, disenchanted the youth group, for example. And then there's another aspect of that. That is, um, there is a large part of the Chinese economy that is a non-state. Uh, 
That is, uh, there are uh, uh, there are individual uh, entrepreneurs. The party now wants to exert total control over this non-state economic sectors. The small business owners, the shopkeepers, the party believes that these were kind of a potential a source of political instability. So all you know, uh, the establishment of uh, uh, this new department directly at the Central Committee of the Chinese Communist Party shows China's increasing uh, confrontation between the state and the people and the population. So it's, it's another measure of social control, except this time is much more centralized. Switching gears to security concerns, uh, this week marks the beginning of the 2023 NATO summit in Vilnius, Lithuania. Last year was the first time the four leaders of NATO's Indo-Pacific uh, partner countries, Australia, Japan, New Zealand, and South Korea, joined the NATO summit for meetings at the head of state and government level. This year, that trend will repeat itself with the four countries informally known uh, within NATO as the Indo-Pacific Four expected to attend. Obviously, the most immediate concern for NATO at this moment is uh, Putin's invasion of Ukraine. But of course, we've seen increased attention on the Indo-Pacific and the threat posed by the Chinese Communist Party. How do Indo-Pacific security concerns fit into uh, NATO's focus in this, up, in this uh, summit? The aggression conducted by Russia against Ukraine is not the regional problem. It's a global problem. China, for example, is the uh, most prominent candidate to join the rank of Russia uh, because the two countries uh, share exactly the same logic of aggression. Russia invades Ukraine, and China would like to take over Taiwan and several other um, territories uh, uh, in dispute with the, uh, many of China's neighbors. And they use the exactly the same kind of logic of aggression. So that's why this is a very important, it's a global issue. Now, as you mentioned, um, I think the top agenda at this uh, NATO summit this week uh, will be Ukraine, obviously. But I think, you know, they're trying to solve several dilemmas. That is, what exactly is the end game of the war in Ukraine? In other words, what a Russian defeat and Ukrainian victory would look like? And it's been very unclear. And I think this is uh, something that I think the NATO uh, allies will discuss. Secondly, there will be increasing talk about the global threat of the Moscow-Beijing coalition to destabilize the existing international order. For the United States, however, uh, the dilemma is this. We want Ukraine to win, but we also do not want to be dragged into another European war where U.S. will pre play a preponderant role, but not the Europeans. That's because the United States' strategic focus has shifted several years ago, away from Europe, away from the Middle East, to focus on China in the Indo-Pacific. So that's why we have to tell the European allies that somehow, uh, yes, uh, we are the major player in NATO alliance, but there is an issue of burden sharing, and there is an issue of U.S. strategic priority, and that should not be changed, uh, focus on China. You mentioned about Japan. Japan is very important because Japan plays a crucial role in connecting the two separate alliances the United States is leading, that is the European Security Alliance and the Asia Security Alliance system. The European Alliance system, obviously, is NATO. It's a multilateral collective defense organization. It's the, one of the most successful uh, global security alliances in human history. U.S. also leads another alliance system in Asia-Pacific. That is um, not multilateral, but mostly, almost exclusively uh, bilateral. 
U.S. has a secure arrangement with Japan, South Korea, and the Philippines in turn degree with with with, uh, with Thailand and uh, Australia. But there is a increasing increasing sentiment to make U.S. Led alliance system in Asia multilateral. That's why you have so many new groupings like a, a Quad or AUKUS. So, uh, but that's in, in, in this uh, um, sort of nascent stage. So, Japan is now playing a leading role in transporting that kind of multilateral collective defense uh, alliance nature from NATO to Asia. So, Japan, you know, had this uh, um, uh, amazing uh, change. In his defense posture a few months ago, announced by Prime Minister Kishida, which I think, who I think is really visionary, and so uh, uh, Japan is now is the most forward-leading, um, forward-looking uh, country in Asia Pacific, trying to play much major role in NATO. And uh, but Japan is not alone. South Korea, Australia, and New Zealand—they're all more or less on the same length, particularly South Korea and Australia. I might say. So NATO alliance right now is also facing a, a serious challenge of redefining its mission. NATO was created primarily for European security, but global security is also crucial for European security. So Europeans should never should abandon the idea that somehow Europe's problem is the world's problem, but the world's problem uh, are not the Europeans' problem. And they're all interconnected. On this note, you've underscored in this conversation, but in the past, the degree to which um, in today's security environment, NATO's focus should extend far beyond Europe and North America. And so far, the involvement of the IP4 has been informal, uh, yet you've argued in the past for the necessity of formalizing their involvement in NATO, going so far as to call for an expansion of the alliance to NAPTO, a North Atlantic Indo-Pacific Treaty Organization. Are you seeing uh, positive steps in this direction in terms of formal involvement, not merely informal involvement? Um, in your estimation, what would it take for NATO to formalize its co cooperation with Indo-Pacific partners? I see two pathway uh, ways uh, uh, toward that uh, eventuality. Number one is obviously extension of NATO membership uh, to Asian Pacific country. It's not going to be like a blanket extension, but anybody who is willing to join, right? Uh, so uh, that's why I propose the concept of, of uh, North Atlantic Indo-Pacific trade organization in NIPTO, as you mentioned earlier. However, you will meet some resistance from within NATO, some of the parochial, very uh, uh, narrow-minded leaders from within NATO, um, particularly the, the, the French um, leaders. I mean, they would not really like that. However, I think the extension of NATO um, to Asia-Pacific can achieve without the existing NATO alliance, as long as we actually change the NATO like nature of the alliance system that is multilateral instead of bilateral and uh, well, for example us uh, could uh, lead uh, the way to form a sort of a nato like multilateral alliance system in asia in other words it's not just in the us japan us south korea and the us philippines it's just then all together join one multilateral uh, collective uh, um, defense arrangement in other words attack on say the Philippines would also be an attack on say Japan South Korea and the United States so this is basically uh, it's not only doable but also it's uh, imperative and uh, necessary many countries in Asia realize 
the China threat is such that uh, no one single country or not two countries could really deal with this uh, uh, severe challenge. That's why I see two ways to to go forward. They are not really that far fetched, and I think leaders like、uh, Prime Minister Kishida and、uh, President Yoon. Of South Korea, they're increasingly talking in those kind of languages.、Uh, President Yoon said, <laughs> "You know, Taiwan's problem is not just regional; it's global problem, right?、Uh, and the Japan leader, Japan Japanese leader, also said even with more clarity on that point. So is Australian leaders. So are Australian leaders,、uh, past and present. So I see. I'm I'm cautiously optimistic about the ultimate formation." Of the NATO-like alliance system in the Asia Pacific region. Well, Miles, I think that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for talking with me, and I'll see you again next week. See you next week. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the China Insider, a podcast from the China Center at Hudson Institute. We appreciate Hudson for making this podcast possible. Follow Miles and all of the additional great work we do at Hudson.org. Please remember to rate and review this podcast, and we'll see you next time on the China Insider.